This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome, everybody, to a new series, Medrash series, based on the weekly parsha. This is going to continue every other week, until Pesach, at which time it's going to become our weekly class. Okay, so before we start, very quickly, anybody who's not on our WhatsApp group, tinyurl.com forward slash Rabbi Epstein. Second thing is we have two books. Dating book and a family purity book available at family at feldheim.com and amazon.com. The third thing is that tonight's year is Le'ilin Ashmas, Zachary Shimon, Vander Gitzak, Hatayan, or Zachary Wallenstein. I dedicate this year in his memory. And anybody who'd like to dedicate a new shirim can contact us at email at marriageco.co or on our WhatsApp group. Good? Okay. So here we go. Guys, anything goes here, please. Thank you. So here we go. Parashas Kisisa. So the Pasuk says as follows. Okay. The Pasuk says that Hashem turns to Maishra Rabbeinu and he says the following words. Kisisa is Rosh Yisrael with When you're going to count the people from Kal Yisrael, the Natsunu ish Kaifer Nafshai la Hashem, the Fedesam, that you should give, each person should give a Kaifer Nafshai. Kaifer Nafshai is a redemption of life, which we have to understand what that means. And if you do that, the law and therefore there shouldn't be any sort of issue. Now, Rashi references what we're all probably familiar with, which is in the days of David Amala, David Amala counted everybody, one, two, three, four, five, and a terrible plague had broken out. And we know that even today people say not one, not two, or they say, some people say, um, some people say like, right? everybody has their way of counting the tent. We know that there's this concept that when somebody is counted, it creates a certain kitrug, which sort of goes against them. And therefore, Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu right off the bat, if you're counting people, don't count them. Everybody should give what's called a kaifer nafshai, a redemption of their soul, and then they'll be okay. But what you have in Baham Negev, and then there won't be any, any sort of trouble, there won't be any sort of issue. So the Medrash refers to this concept, the concept of giving the masses a shakel. The Medrash refers to this as if somebody is repaying the loan. So when you're giving this you're giving the money and the money is going as if like you borrowed something and now you're paying it and now you're you're free. You're off the hook. So the Dibna Magad explains this medrash as follows. He says, imagine you have a man who decides he wants to build a Tom's River house. Okay, so he goes ahead and he borrows from this person, he borrows lumber from this person, he borrows wires from this person he borrows pipes he goes around his neighborhood and he starts borrowing things from people now if those things are sitting in front of his yard and the guy doesn't start construction so that guy if people want to get paid they can show up to his house and say hey you didn't pay it i'm taking it back right in in american law there's something called a contractor's lien i'm not familiar you guys are with that contact a contractor's lien basically means if you take something from somebody and it becomes like imparted in your building and you didn't pay for it, then they have like a lien almost on like the thing that's attached to the ground. So a guy goes ahead, he borrows a whole bunch of stuff and it's sitting in front of his driveway and he didn't pay for it. So the Divna Magad says, guy could show up and say, listen, you didn't pay for the materials. I'm taking back the materials. It's mine. You didn't pay for it. Can't build your house. But what happens if a guy goes ahead and he builds his house? He builds a 10,000 square foot house and he's all excited. He makes a Chanukah Sabayas and he invites everybody over. And all of a sudden, like the people who show up to the Hanukkah Sabbath are like, uh, excuse me, I'm your neighbor. You didn't pay me for all the stuff that you took from me. The guy says, okay, yeah, listen, I took some pipes. I took some wires. I took some this. What are you going to do? You're going to start ripping out my ceiling and ripping out my floor? 
you're going to cause so much more damage than the value of the item that was taken. So the Dubna Magid says, with that muscle, we could understand what's going on over here. As follows, that a person is viewed in two capacities. On one capacity, a person is viewed individually. Hashem looks at you as an individual. And as an individual, you're, you're, you're graded, you're judged, you're perceived from Hashem as such. Then there's a person who's viewed in the totality of how they stand within their community. And every person, whether they realize it or not, has an obligation to participate within their community to whatever standard they're able to participate. And when a person does that and they attach themselves to a community, then you're no longer viewed as a wire. You're not, no longer viewed as a part. You're now a whole. You're part of something bigger. You're part of the whole house. And when a person is viewed as part of a bigger picture, you're viewed as, oh, that's the guy's house. Oh, that's his house. That's Kuala Yisrael. That's the bigger picture of people. In such a context, the person has a certain shmirah. And that's the idea behind the Mahsa Sashatha. A person on his own is counted. One, two, three. You're an individual. When you put everything together, you become Klal Yisrael. You're part of a Klal. You're part of a group. And when you're part of a group, that creates a Shmira for you and for your family. I remember a number of years ago, during COVID actually, I got this joke in my head to fulfill a lifelong dream of becoming an EMT. Don't ask why. It was something, I actually was somewhere that there was a number of medical emergencies and the EMTs that were on call, let's call it, were not, um, I don't know how to say it. Like they weren't, I wasn't so thrilled with like what was going on. For various reasons, it was like a hodgepodge situation. And I felt that this place needed a responsible individual. So therefore, I looked around and I found an EMT course that was starting. And I went ahead and I became an EMT. As part of the course, your your goal, your job is to go out on rotation. I was living in Brooklyn at the time. And you go on a nine-on-one shift. And these EMTs, many of them doing this for their whole life. That's their career. That's their job. They they show you the ropes, you know. Sometimes they let you do, do a little bit more. Sometimes a little bit less. But fine. Now, I had a connection, as every Jew does, like not what you know. So, you know, I had a connection with somebody who was connected very well to this 901, you know, EMS for, you know, for New York. So he allowed me to go on shift whenever I wanted to go. So being that I wanted to like really learn as much as I could, I went on a number of shifts, probably like whatever, more than I should have, but I went on a number of shifts just to be able to learn as much as I possibly could. And you see the ins and outs of the thing. Anyways, one shift that I had, we had um, two African-American uh, couple. They weren't married, but it was like a man thing and a woman. And they were, they were the, you know, they were the EMTs and they were sort of, you know, showing me the, showing me the ropes. It was actually funny because the area that we were in was a pretty bad neighborhood. And to the point where I once, they stopped at a bodega to like get food. So the guy said, do you want to run into the thing and get something? So I, yeah, like they basically, they just park the ambulance and they wait for a call. And then when the call comes out, the system says, okay, this guy is the closest, you know, this, this ambulance is the closest ambulance. So then they send them out. That's how it works. So you could have a lot of dead time. You could just sit there for hours and hours. And I'm like sitting in the back. I'm listening to Shurim. I'm preparing Shurim. And these guys are sitting up front. Some of them are using their time valuably. Um, you know, they're like studying to become a paramedic or whatever. 
and some of them are not some of them are just like watching movies or whatever but that's how it works and then like a call comes in boom and then everybody just you take off so during during like the 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 downtime i'll call it some of sometimes they would talk to me and sometimes they would just ignore me and they would do their own thing it was like this unspoken rule like we don't want to talk now we just want to do our thing or now we want to chat and we want to get to know you a little bit so these guys they decided they're gonna take me under their wing and they're gonna mentor me couple of EMTs and we started schmoozing and you know they're like hey you're the Jewish guy wonderful I wore a cap because it was like a really not a good neighborhood and like we were running into this bodega to get food so the guy parked the engine said do you want to run in so I said yeah I'll run in so I jumped off and I ran in and then a second later the EMT like followed me in so I thought he followed me in not because he wanted to buy something because he was like scared for me to be the only uh Caucasian in like 10 miles so he like walked in to like protect me like don't worry like he's my guy so it was like that kind of massive as you could imagine so when i was when i was when i was finished buying stuff finally get it the guy starts moving with me and starts talking and he's like you want to know what's wrong with the whole you know 911 system in new york i was like what's wrong he says what's wrong is that black lives don't matter now you have to remember this was like at the height of like the blm riots where new york decided for some reason no big deal if you wanted to burn down the city. It's okay as long as you're doing it with Shem Shemayim, you know, and it's fine. And that was like New York's, you know, stance on this. So I'm like, oh, okay. He's like, yeah, anytime there's like an issue, just remember, black lives don't matter. I'm like, okay, black lives don't matter. He's like, what's the book? Black lives don't matter. So the whole night, I'm like repeating black lives don't matter. He's saying black lives don't matter. That was like our mantra, the whole shift. And anytime anything went wrong, he's like, yeah, black lives don't matter. Fine, no problem. Anyways, we pull up to a call. And the way it works is there's like a screen in the front of the ambulance. And as the shift is going along, the 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 operator, I guess, the 911 operator is getting information from the caller. So let's somebody call and says, hi, my problem was not feeling well. And he's laying here. So it comes along, it's a 98-year-old male, not feeling well. Oh, you've just slumped over in this thing. Oh, I lost consciousness. Oh, he banged his head. Oh, banged his head. Oh, there's blood on the floor. There's blood on the floor. Like they, they just update it. So as you're going to the call, sometimes you're getting more information. And we got a call. And this was a very interesting call. We had two calls back to back. So the first call was a guy who overdosed. And when we got there, we show up and we needed the NYPD to escort us into this building. This was like a known crime scene building, very dangerous location. So we needed the NYPD to escort us in. So the, the guy gets on the radio. He says, yes, we're waiting for PD to show up. And about five seconds later, he turns to me and he says, you know why the cops aren't here yet? Why not? Because because black lives don't matter, right? I'm like, okay. He's like, yeah, black lives don't matter. That's why the police don't show up. I'm like, okay, maybe they're busy with like the BLM riot right now. I didn't say that, but right. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, okay, no problem. <laughs> so he's like, yeah, black lives don't matter, and that's why the police ain't here yet. Okay, so we're like waiting, and maybe I'm gonna say ninety seconds later, like a little cop pull up. Please pull up. And the two cops get out and the police happen to be black. Okay. So the police happen to be black. So I like turned to the guy. I'm like, black lives don't matter. But like the cops here are like African-American individuals. He's like, yeah, black lives don't matter. It's the whole NYPD is downhill because black lives don't matter. Like, oh, fine. So we go up to this call and it was an overdose patient. And we actually saved this guy's life, which was very rewarding. Except that in the middle, he got very violent. And then the police had to deal with him. And it's also very interesting to watch people who get very violent 
um, and then the police take their stance. Um, and you see them turn to like little like Tadika and like, oh, like, yes, sir, you're honorable, sir. You know, like the way that they talk after saying like a lot of other things. So this guy was very compliant with like our police officers and we dealt with him, Mark Shem. He was healthy, he was good, and he was able to overdose another day. So that was our that was our guy for that night. And it was a beautiful night. And we go downstairs and I'm like, okay, black lives don't matter. But the police who show up happen to be black. And the patient, ironically, is not. So they're not, it's not like white cops that are not showing up to save black people. The patient himself happens to be a white guy. That's not going into any of these guys' things. They're just explaining to me, black lives don't matter. And that's all you got to know. Fine. So then we go to, we sit down in the ambulance. We're talking more. And the guy's explaining to me how black lives don't matter. And the profile, and it's going on and on about black lives don't matter. And just repeat after me. The only issue in New York City is black lives don't matter. Okay, you got me. I'm with you on this whole thing. It's not really computing, but I'm, I'm, I'm not such a smart guy. You just educate me. So, fine. Then a call comes in. And the call comes in as a, a multiple calls. Okay, so a call comes in. and comes in on the screen as somebody's injured. And they hear a loud noise, like people fighting. And somebody's injured. So we, we head over there. And then as we go, it starts updating that there's a knife at the location. And there's also a gun at the location. So you don't just like pull up like right up to the scene and just not go out. The first thing they teach you in EMT school is scene safety, right? That's the first thing. You can't save somebody if you're being shot at. So we pull up to the scene like a block away and we're waiting. And then like the police come flying in, gun, knife, whatever. And they like literally like line up like seven, eight cops and they go like running into the building and they like motion for us. Yeah, you guys can come. We line up behind them. And we go into the building and it's like really geschmack, like a whole like troop of people going into this building. And I'm thinking to myself, like, I'm coming from like giving a share on tour anytime to like running into some building in some neighborhood here where there's like guns and overdose and people shooting at each other. This is like really um, a dichotomy, but fine. So you go in and I'm wearing my, my uh, EMT hat so nobody could tell that I'm from Jew. Like the guy standing in the stadium who has his pay sticking on, he's asking if you're David Melfia, but nobody could tell. So that was me. So I'm, we're going into this building. And we go up to we go upstairs, and as we come upstairs to the top landing, there is glass all over the floor. It looks like something major happened. So the police all look at each other and they go, "Okay, apartment, whatever it is, eight C on the eighth floor." By the way, in these neighborhoods, also it could be li- literally like three a.m., but the neighborhood is like hopping as if it's three in the afternoon. Like the police like bang on the door with their batons as if it's like nobody there. Like boom, 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 and everyone's like. Nobody even comes out to see like what's going on or like, hey, be quiet. It's 3 a.m. It's just like no problem because that's like it's normal. They're like literally like a ship. So 3 a.m. Police are boom, 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 knock, open the door and the door gets swung open by two African-American females. And they say to the police officer like, yo, it's the police. And one goes, you call the police. No, I didn't call the police. You call the police. They start arguing with each other. And one of them goes, yo, I hate the police. And she didn't say hate the police. She said a lot of other co- very colorful words at the police officers. And she slams the door. And the cop's like, whoa, what's going on here? Right? We got a call. This apartment, there's a lot of things going on in here. What's going on? So that once you open the door, apparently the law is, the police are now allowed to, like, yeah, like, open the door. So they like, open the door. And she's pushing the door. And they open the door. Finally, like, one of them, like, slips out of the door. Clearly, she is on a substance that I do not recognize. And she's like, she's like, yo, why? Like, what's with all the aggression? And her friend is screaming from the inside, screaming about the police, how she hates the police. She wants them all to die. So I'm like, okay, what is going on over here? So this friend comes out and she's like, yeah, 
um, the police say, was anybody shot? No. Is there a gun on location? No. You have any knife? No. Why'd you call the police? She says, oh, I was bitten by a dog. Bitten by a dog? Okay, that's not how the call came across. What happened with the, the glass on the floor? They said, oh, the glass on the floor? Well, one of us was drinking and got intoxicated and dropped the, like a wine bottle on the floor with some, some champagne things, whatever. A whole bunch of glass fell and broke. So there was no fight? No, no fight. Okay, so you're bitten by a dog. Can we see your injury? She's like, yeah. She like rolls up her sleeve. And there's like little, two little like marks from like a little tiny dog dog bite on her arm. They were like, oh, what type of dog? She's like, I don't know, like little tiny dog. Like we have a dog in the apartment. It bit me and I was screaming. And this was right after somebody in the hallway dropped some glass and it exploded. So the neighbors, no big deal, just said, okay, somebody's fighting again. Somebody's screaming again. So we call the police. Somebody's fighting and there's something going on. So we're like, okay, you would like to go to the hospital? She's like blazed out of her mind. And she's like, yeah, like, yeah, I'll go to the hospital. Sure, why not? We're like, okay, so let's go downstairs. <laughs> we look at each other. There's no elevator in these buildings. We're like, you can walk, right? She's like, yeah, we can walk. We're like, thank you. She can walk. The, the other option is that you have to carry them down, like eight flights. We're like, okay, Baruch Hashem, we're going to walk you down. So she starts walking down. Her friend is screaming about the police. The police already, like half of them walked downstairs to the building. And as we exit the building, the doors open. We start walking out with our patient, and and I hear one of the cops talking to the other, and he goes, "Yeah, man, that's why I hate all these Jewish people." So I'm like, "Whoa!" I clearly just missed a nice conversation there. He's like, "Yeah, I hate these Jewish people," and I'm like, "Okay." So I continue walking with my patient. Like we're gonna give her top quality care. And she's going to go to the hospital and they're going to give her some sort of rabies shot or something. And everybody's going to live happily ever after this night. As we're putting her into the ambulance, so she gets in, she sits down, they buckle her in, it's a whole to-do. Um, you hear on the police radios coming over that there's a fight and there's a knife and there's a gun. And now the address is like two buildings away from where we were. So the police are like, wait, there's a knife, there's a gun. The call really came in before about a knife and a gun, but there was nobody here. So the police are like, oh, oh. And then they realized that two people called 911 at the exact same moment. One was calling about a fight with a knife and a gun. The other was calling about an injured individual. But they thought that it was all one call. And then they thought that when we got this lady with the chihuahua bite, that that was the whole call. So the police were like, oh, there's two calls. So they start running towards this fight that had moved down the block away from the building that we were at. So they're running and our lady's sitting there. She's like with her thing. She's like, literally like her eyes are glazed over. And as this cop who is screaming about how he hates all the Jews is running by me, he's like stops and he goes, he goes, hey, don't go anywhere because if something goes down, I want you to be here for me. And then he runs away. So we get into the ambulance and we're like, okay, we're just staging because in case there's a shooting or a stabbing or something happens to the police officer, we should be around to be able to treat the police officer. So we're waiting and we're waiting. And then um, the police run and they give us a clear signal like, yeah, you guys can show up. So we like roll up and we see there was a man with a gun and there was another man with a knife and they were having a very heated discussion. Thankfully, like eight police officers came running in, tackled them to the ground, arrested both of them. Everybody's in custody and nobody's injured. So we're free to clear with our uh, high 
as a Kayate patient who is on her way rolling to the hospital to get her rabies out. So we go to the hospital and we drop her off and no big deal. We don't know what happened to her, but presumably she survived. Now we get back into the ambulance and my head is like spinning. It's like literally like spinning. And I'm like, here's, here's my mouth shot. I'm like, one second. That's the conclusion. Everybody hates the police. That's <laughs> clear. Everybody hates the police, right? In New York, everybody hates the police, right? Well, every patient we encounter tonight hates the police. They have very choice words for the police, which would not make it onto our anytime, would not make it onto YouTube, would make it onto anywhere. Like, it was very choice words for the police. Fine. That's granted. They don't like the police. Yeah. When they need the police, they're first, they're 911. Get over here now. I need assistance, right? The police come like, oh, you okay? I need, I need your help. Help me out. Okay. Everybody hates the police. Amazing. Right. Black lives don't matter. So that means that everybody hates black people, except that when they actually need your help, they call, they say, yeah, we're here for you. That's pretty amazing. Like whenever somebody needs something, they're there for that person. The police officer hates all Jews, but he grabs the first Jew he sees and he's like, you better be here for me because if something goes down, I need you to treat me. And I was like, it's so interesting how as a group, people are viewed and perceived and judged. And then as an individual, there's a completely different relationship with that individual. You see this with Israel a lot. People, they take Jews and Israel and they conflate the two. It goes on in the world. I would argue it's probably the same thing with Palestinians as well and Arabs, Middle Easterns, and Ashkenazim, and Spartan, and Kassidim, the way we perceive people in a general sense is in one aspect, and then there's the individual side of things, which is this person. And what got me thinking about this idea of the Maxis Ashaka, based on this, the Namagid, is the, the idea that a person, I think most of us would agree, that when you think about, I'll call it your tasket in this world, your avoider, what you're working on, most people come down to a very individual perspective on themselves. I have to work on, I have to work on my Pashtatara, I have to work on my emotional health, I have to work on my physical health, I have to work on my relationships, and that is a very nice way for a person to perceive themselves. Good. But Rabbi Berkowitz, my Rebbe, would always talk about the idea of seeing yourself as part of a bigger picture, seeing yourself as part of a community, seeing yourself as part of a cloud. And that perspective Seeing yourself as a cog in the wheels of everything that is around you, it makes you live a bigger life. It makes you live a more gehaven life. It makes you live a more responsible life. And I would challenge anybody, don't just ask yourself, what is my advaita? Like from now till Purim, what am I working on? From now till Pesach, what am I working on? Ask yourself a different question. From now till Purim, till Pesach, till the summer, where do I fit into my community? What is my role in my community? What do I do for my community? I was once part of a shul and the guy who handed me the reins to the shul as the guy Shani, really something I did not want to do, but he like basically nominated me. And then they had, I was like the only guy nominated and voted for really against my will. Did not want the job. The guy said to me, I'm just telling you that in life there are givers and there are takers. And you'll look around by every single shul. You'll see the people that are the takers. They just take, 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 and they walk out the door. And then there's the guys that give, give, give. And he said, I'm asking you to become one of the givers. This is after he already nominated me to be the only guy that did anything for the role. But that's a different story. Within our lives, there are people that will take from the community. And then there are people that give to the community. It's a different life. It's a different brain. When you view yourself as somebody that's able to give out more. And it, it does 
I think, touch on the basic premise of Chesed, but it expands past your own house. It expands to understanding that if you're a qual person, if you see yourself as a qual person, if you see yourself as something that's bigger than yourself, you're going to live a different type of lifestyle. And that is the first idea that I want to share with you tonight. The next idea is the concept as follows. The Pasuk says that when Moshe Rabbeinu was told all the information that had to do with building the Mishkan, so he's told, you're going to build this, you're going to, give, you're going to build this, you're going to build this, the asu, the asu, the asu. And the Pasuk says many, many, many times what is going to happen. Okay, you're going to do this. You're going to do that. I'm trying to find some sukkum over here. It just says it like, like a dozen times. But the asu, you're going to make this. You're going to make the mezbecha, you're going to make the kalim, you're going to make the kiyar, you're going to, you're going to, make, you're going to make everything. You're going to do everything. But then Shem turns to Moshe and says, Re'e, you should see, that I called, Harasi B'Shem, called with this name, B'Tzalel Ben Uri Lempla. I called by name B'Tzalel. And who was B'Tzalel? B'Tzalel was Moshe Rabbeinu's nephew, essentially. And he is going to be the one who's going to, he's filled up with a certain Chachma, and B'Tzalel is going to be the one that is going to be building the Mishkan. He's going to do it. Now, why would you say that? Because Moshe Rabbeinu, in a certain sense, as Hashem was saying, va'asu, 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 you're going to, you, 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 you're going to build, you're going to build. So Moshe Rabbeinu was like, okay, I'm going to build, I'm going to build. But it wasn't Moshe. It was B'tzalah. And what does it mean that Hashem says to him, re'eh, you'll see, see that I called him. What does that mean? So the Medrash says that Hashem pulled out a book. And this book, it's, it's, it's a, a question of when we lost this book. But this book existed for thousands of years. And in this book, it's called the Sefer Adam Harishan. Now, just Kabbalistically, we're told that Adam Harishan contained the neshamas of everybody in Kali Yisrael. And after the Cheda Egal, his neshama was sort of dispersed over the millennia. And therefore, every person got a certain part of Adam Harishan's neshama. And they were, me and you and everybody, we have our kid in this world. And Hashem took all those neshamas, meaning me, you and everybody, he wrote them down and he showed other Marishan all the people that are going to be the Manhigim, the Gavirim, the, the, the Rashi Yeshiva, all the people that are going to be in every single generation that was showed to other Marishan. And Hashem took that book and he took the Sefer other Marishan and he sat down with Mishra and he said, Re'e, I want to open up to your generation. What's in your generation? Who's the, who's the Manhigim? Oh, it says right here. Moshe Rabbeinu is going to be the Mela. Aaron Akain is going to be the Kain Gagal. V'chulei, v'chulei. Oh, Re'ei, Karasi B'Shev. I'm calling out a name. Who is this? This is B'Tzalel ben Uri ben Chor. B'Tzalel is filled up with a special Chachma. He's going to be the one who's going to be building the Mishkan. So Hashem showed him. It was like, this is predetermined, predestined, nothing that anybody can do. This was set in stone from the beginning, from the days of Adam Marishan, that B'Tzalel has a special chush for building. Why? Why did Hashem have to go through this whole sitting him down, showing him a book, telling him you should know B'Tzalel, look, from the beginning. So Chazal tell us a very interesting thing, which I think goes to the core of really what it means to be human. We mentioned that Moshe Rabbeinu is sitting there listening to all the things that Hashem is telling him to have to happen. Hashem says, you have to build the Mishkan and then the Kaven. Well, everything has to happen. Moshe is getting excited. 
going to be me. going to be building it. And then Hashem says, by the way, it's not you. It's going to be Betzalel, your nephew. The natural teva of a person, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu was not a normal person, but the natural teva of a person is to either be jealous or disappointed. And the way that the Sarim explained it is that Moshe Rabbeinu could have thought to himself that maybe I lost this chutz. Maybe it was really supposed to be me. And now Hashem shows up and Hashem says, I'm sorry, it's not you. I decided that it's Betzalel. Why? What did I do wrong? No, you didn't really do anything wrong. Moshe could have thought that he lost his schus. You find this a little bit with Yaakov, that Yaakov thought, maybe I lost some of my schus. Right? You find this with, they thought, maybe I lost something, I did something wrong, and therefore I lost something. Therefore Hashem thought about Moshe's thought. He thought about Moshe Rabbeinu's emotion before Moshe even thought the thought. So before Hashem even showed Moshe or told him the bad news, he's like, Moshe, I want to learn with you. I have a safer here. Oh, what's in the safer? Well, it talks about everybody who's going to do everything for all time. He's like, okay, uh, let's flip to your generation. Oh, look at this. Moshe Rabbeinu is the Mela. Okay, that's you. Aaron Akain, he's the kind. Oh, Re'ei, Karasi B'Shem, B'Tzalel, Ben Uri, Ben Four. Moshe's like, oh, what did he do? Oh, he built. Ah, so originally it was planned that he's going to build the Mishnah. So therefore it was never my place in this world to build the Mishnah. Okay, I accept that. He almost got his answer revealed to him before he got the bad news. That's like I always say, when somebody says to you, don't be insulted, you are about to be really insulted, right? Somebody says, don't get mad, you probably have a very good reason for getting mad. Hashem didn't say like, you know, hold on, wait. No, Hashem said, let's learn this together. Re'e, let's look what it says there. Oh, look what it says. It happens to be that you were never deterred, you, you were never destined to build a Mishkan. And Moshe's like, oh, okay. So therefore, it's all top good in this world. He was able to accept it because Hashem thought, how would Moshe take it? What would be his emotional reaction? I think this goes to the core of what it means to be a human being. To be a human being, obviously, can't be Hashem, but we could be like Hashem, is to think through what do my actions, what do my statements, how do they impact other people? How does somebody else feel based on what I do? How does somebody else feel based on the circumstances that they have going on in their life? That idea is the concept of empathy putting yourself into their shoes and almost feeling their feeling. And I think that most people, tell me if you think I'm wrong, I think most people, they usually think, how do I feel in these circumstances? We're egocentric. So we use our emotions, which are an incredible matana, to be able to connect, to connect to ourselves. We use this ability to connect to others just to connect deeply with ourselves. And it's interesting how so often if a person goes ahead and uses that to, to channel it outward, like, let me put my own emotions on hold for a second and just try to feel somebody else's feeling. You get such a clarity, such a perspective shift. Oh, that's what they're saying. That's why they're upset. That's why they're feeling what they're feeling. That concept, empathy, is what Hashem demonstrates over here. Instead of taking your emotions, which is a tremendous asset, and using it as a liability to just think about yourself. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about you. What are you going to feel? What are you going to think coming out of it? That concept, is empathy. I was recently on a Shabbaton and there was a Rav from Florida, his name is Rabbi 
Ian Silverman, who was there. Very, very well-spoken, Rob. Really incredible. He had a great Shabbos together. And on the Shabbos, he shared a story as follows. He is from Florida. He was originally actually from the UK, but he now has a shul in Florida, in Hollywood, Florida. And it came, it came winter vacation, Yeshiva week, which he never heard of before because he's from the UK. And his family was telling him that we should get together. So usually they come down to Florida. But this past year, they decided that they're going to go on a skiing trip. The whole family is going to go together and they're going to go skiing. So for him, it's a novelty because he's in Florida and they have this beautiful weather and it's such a struggle to live there in the winter. So he decided that he's going to go somewhere that he could have an excitement and he's going to go skiing with his, with his children and his grandchildren. They went on a, a week-long, I'll call it skiing, you know, skiing trip. And when he got there, he is 73 years old. When he got there, he told his wife, you know, rather than just allowing the grandchildren and some of his own children to go skiing, he said, I'm going to pick up this thing called skiing. I want to learn. Everyone seems to have a good time. I'm going to go skiing. I'm going to learn what this is. So they were teaching him what he needs to know. I know I said over a, a skiing story last time, but this is his skiing story. So they go ahead and they teach him how to ski. And he actually becomes a pretty good skier. His wife, Rebetzin, was like, okay, you're doing your thing. I'm going to be at the lodge doing whatever she's doing the whole week. Not very interested in him skiing. But every day, let's say Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, every day he comes back and he's telling her the thrill of skiing. You don't understand. It's so bishmak, you fly down the mountain. You can feel I'm becoming so good at this and I love it and it's great. And he's telling her all about how great it is skiing. So Friday came around. Everybody goes to go skiing and the way it worked was on the bottom of the mountain was like this like snow village where everybody was staying for Shabbos with a lot of Jews there as well and then you have to take off like a gondola to the top and then on the top there that's like the base of the mountain and then you continue to take off the uh what do they call the ski lifts all the way up the mountain okay so he takes his wife up the gondola and they go up and they get to the to the base of the mountain and they have these fire pits over there and like they're sitting there by the fire pit and he's going up and he's skiing and he's having the time of his life. And he keeps going up and up and up and he keeps going down. And he's just having a blast. And he's there with a few of his kids, a few of his family. And there's literally like a hundred Jews there, a lot of non-Jews. It's Friday. And it, Shabbos then is about 4.30. So it's getting a little bit closer to Shabbos, but it's no big deal. Because you just have to hop on this little gondola and just go down, you know, and then you're back at your, at your lodge. Now it's about two o'clock and he basically finishes skiing. And he turns to his wife. He says, okay, I'm ready to go back. Okay, let's, let's hop on the gondola. So they go over to the gondola and he sees that there's a whole commotion. The gondola is not moving. And the guy who's in charge is telling everybody, uh, I'm sorry, everybody, but there seems to be an issue with one of the parts, the malfunction. And we ordered a new part. It's going to take a number of hours till it gets there. And once it gets here, we have to fix it. And once, it, once we fix it, we have to test it. And once we test it, then you could go down. But don't worry. Enjoy your time skiing. But by the time night comes around, everybody will be fine. You'll be able to get down the mountain. It'll be great. So he is like, uh, not okay with this. So, <laughs> so all the Jews start tumbling and all the non-Jews start tumbling. So some people just go back on the mountain, but everyone basically made their way into this cabin. You know, they have like these cabins on the bottom where you go skiing and everyone starts like tumbling. Like, what do we do? This is a problem. So they keep asking to speak with the manager. And like every Jew is on the phone with everybody that they could, you know, think of. <laughs> calling somebody is calling somebody like, what's the par? What number is it? The serial number? The manufacturer who's around? Everybody's like calling and tumbling and handling. And, you know, it's, it's going exactly as you, as you would imagine. 
it's getting like it's 2.30 already, 2.45, and people are really, really, really starting to panic. One lady's like, I'm pregnant. What if I go into labor? I came up here. Like, uh, my husband's not here. Everyone is having like, you know, not having an easy time. So at one point, at one point, I think they decided to have milka, milka together. And there was one person there who turned to him and said, you know, I just see the way you do you're all this, like looking at each other and having like these conversations, like boom, bada, boom, bada, boom, mincha, this, that, you know, I, I just see, he's like, are you guys all like one big, huge family? And he's like, no. And he's like, we, there's nobody like you people. Like there's nobody. The way everyone is just on the same page. What time is Shkia? What time is this? Like what to go? You know, like that. Just the, I. She's like, I never saw something like this. All the Goyim are just like drained by themselves, and you Jews are just like a hundred people just doing your same thing. So this went on for quite a while, and then it got to about four o'clock, and it was already like this is crazy. So he's like, listen, <laughs> if we're gonna stay here for Shabbos, we'll stay here for Shabbos, but we're gonna just give this one more shot and see if we could get down the mountain. So. He decides on his own, he's going to start walking to the lift and just to see, maybe he gets to the lift, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. And as he starts walking, the way Jews are, when you see one guy who, right, you think he knows something, everybody thinks that that guy knows something. Meanwhile, he doesn't know anything, but he starts walking. So the next guy starts walking. And then as you have a, a line of 100 Jews, then all the Gaim are like, one of them must have called somebody who told him something. So you have... Oh, you know, 900 Jews behind, 900 guys behind the Jews. So there's a line of a thousand people and they're walking and you can clearly see that the thing is, is not working. But as they walk up to the thing, they see a technician. The guy literally just finished connecting the piece and it literally started walking, working as they walk up. So the guy says to them, yes, it does work, but everybody hold your horses. It works, but we got to test it now for like a half hour. And a half hour later, it was 4.30 and 4.30 was Shkia. So he's like, listen, we're just going to take a risk over here, okay? Because it's our Sabbath and we have no choice. We're not waiting a half hour. And you got to get 100 Jews onto this thing, okay, on time before. So the guy was like, I have to ask my manager. He's like, you're not asking your manager. We're getting onto this and we're going down the mountain. The guy's like, okay, fine, fine. I'll let you guys get onto them. So they all jump on. The guy presses the button. And one after the next, they all make it down the mountain. He got off the, off the ski lift at like 4.07 maybe. And he's like, okay, we got 22 minutes to get to shul. His wife is running home, right? And as he gets to the bottom of the mountain, he says he's standing there and he sees an SUV parked on the bottom of the mountain and the back of the SUV is open. And there's a, a couple from Lakewood that's sitting there. And as he gets off, they say, I say, are you, are you running for Shabbos? He says, yes. They said, do you need any food for Shabbos? So he says, no, my kids are here and they, I think they made everything, you know, but Thank you for offering. They're like, oh, okay, no problem. So he's like, what are you, what are you offering? Like, I don't understand. What are you offering? They said, well, like an hour and a half ago, the call came out that there was a lot, like a hundred Jews stuck on the mountain. So this couple sat down, took anything they could get their hands on and just started making food and putting it into nine by 13 hands and just started stacking them up in this SUV. Their entire back of their SUV was just filled up with food for strangers that they never met before because they were like, if everyone is stuck, when they get off the mountain, what are they going to do for Shabbos? They're going to not going to have food. And he walked into shul. He said he was on the highest of highs when he thought he was going to be on the lowest of lows for that Friday night. And he's like, remembering the voice of this non-Jew who's sitting there saying, you guys don't understand what you have. 
the concept of everybody panicking. Oh my gosh. And this couple, I don't know who they are, some couple from Lakewood who just turns and are like, well, people are stuck. So then let's put ourselves in their shoes for a minute. Besides everything else, what happens if they do get off the mountain? Now what happens if they don't get off the mountain? If they do get off the mountain, what's going to happen then? They're going to need food. So let's just sit here for the next hour and a half, no matter what, put food into 9 by 13 pens, just be ready to hand them out. It is incredible, incredible concept of being able to put yourself into somebody else's shoes. And I think that it goes to the heart of what it means to be a yid, which is to care for other people within your own world, within your your own house, your own family. Think about how your actions and your voice and all these other things impact other people. But at the same time, at the same time, to view yourself as part of a bigger picture, not just your own house, but your community, people around you. What can you offer them? What can you do that will help illuminate the people around you? And if a person does that, then they're living life on a higher level. And Hashem takes note of that. He's like, you're not just you. You're part of something so much bigger. You're part of a claw. If something's going to happen to you, if you're going to be judged, if you're going to be done, if there's going to be a close, if there's going to be anything, it's not just going to come from you, it's going to come from all the people around you. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.